Good morning, everyone, and again, welcome. And add my welcome to uh, particularly any visitors, but all of us here as we have our harvest service today, and this also this prayer day as well. I'd like to begin with a reading in Psalm 72. I don't know whether you would count this as a harvest prayer or psalm, but that's the psalm that uh, I've chosen this morning. Psalm 72. If you've uh, got a Bible, turn to it. If you need a Bible, then sort of wave your hand, and I think one of the stewards hopefully will come and uh, bring one to you. Don't think it's going to come up on the screen, but uh, never mind. But here we go with Psalm 72. Um, yeah, not that one, not yet. Uh, not that slide yet, that's it. Okay. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. The mountains will bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. He will crush the oppressor. He will endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. He will be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days the righteous will flourish, prosperity will abound till the moon is no more. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The desert tribes will bow before him. His enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him. All nations will serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. Let corn abound throughout the land, on the tops of the hills may it sway. Let its fruit flourish like Lebanon, let it thrive like grass of the field. May his name endure forever, may it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvellous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. May God bless that reading of his word and help us as we look at one part of it this morning. I wonder what we make of that psalm. It's not one that really flows well, is it? If you say Psalm 23, I guess most of us could at least start off saying it or Psalm 8, or Psalm 139. Uh, maybe you're not too sure of those numbers, but, uh, uh, you know, Psalm 139 is about how God searches our hearts and things like that, and uh, how he knows us through and through. Those are the 
well-known psalms, aren't they? Ones that we often use when we want to meet with God. But this particular psalm doesn't ring many bells, does it? But it's verse 16 that I would like to focus on this morning. Sorry, the print is rather small there. But uh, in verse 16, we have this saying in, uh, which is, speaks of harvest in what I think of as unusual places. Let me just read those for you. In one of the versions, it says, There shall be a handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountain. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. But then another translation says, May there be abundance of grain in the land, on the tops of the mountains let it wave. And another translation, Let corn abound throughout the land, on the tops of the hills may it sway, let its fruits flourish like Lebanon, let it thrive like the grass of the field. And in the message translation, that's the bottom one in red there, Fields of golden grain in the land, cresting the mountains in wild exuberance, cornucopias of praise, praises springing from the city like grass from the earth. This is one of those know what I mean moments. You know, you're in, in the restaurant with someone and uh, you've not caught up with them for some time and they begin to tell you all about recent things that have happened in their life and then they say, know what I mean? <laughs> and you think, I'm not really sure I did know what they meant. <laughs> and at that point, do you decide to just agree anyway and say, yeah, I do know what you mean, even though in your heart you're thinking, hmm, not too sure about this, or do you ask for another explanation and inflict another quarter an hour uh, of all the wonderful things they want to tell you? But it's worth it for another cup of coffee, isn't it? So, so why not? But here we have in this particular text one of those know-what-I-mean sorts of scenarios. There will be a handful of corn in the earth on the top of the mountain. This verse is a bit like that. Do we know what it means? Can we explore that a bit this morning on a, on a harvest occasion? Because we struggle perhaps with what it might mean. But to me, it means harvest in unexpected places. Today we celebrate a harvest and we've done that each year, I'm sure, well, more years than we've been alive, haven't we? Because every generation, in Christian circles at least, celebrates a harvest and even in pagan and in other religions there is some kind of harvest celebration because we think about the sowing that takes place we think about all the tending of crops that takes place and at the end when the harvest is brought in we are conscious that although we had to work hard to make it happen yet something else happened and that some sort of God or other brought it to being. Of course, we would say it is the God of heaven and earth as Christians, but nevertheless, we rest in 
what God does. And on the text there, Genesis 8, 22, God's promise, we rest in this, seed time and harvest shall not pass away. Cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. We take it for granted, don't we? You know, you turn the light out at nine o'clock, ten o'clock, midnight, whatever time we go to bed, and we just assume that uh, there's going to be another day. And you wake up, and behold, there is another day, and you open your eyes blearily and make yourself a cup of tea to get the day going. But we just take it for granted. And yet, we have to remember today as we bring our harvest, and as some of it is going, or perhaps all of it is going to those who struggle to make ends meet, that even today there is still a place where there is drought and famine and where there is no harvest and where people are starving. So how does that work with that phrase in Genesis 8 that God promises to meet these needs? And we had to be thankful that Christian agencies and other agencies are working in such areas and planning for long-term recovery. That they're not just saying, well, here, here we are, guys, here's some food. But that many of these agencies are actually working with those people to try and rejuvenate the soil or to bring back crops or to bring back uh, animals uh, and birds that will help the long-term recovery, seeking to fulfill what God has promised, that as the earth endures, these things, this flow of life, will not pass away. And in this sense, we do need harvest in unexpected places, don't we? those places where the drought is severest, those places where it has not rained perhaps for months or even years, how we need a harvest in unexpected places. But how does that relate back to this text in Psalm 72 and verse 16? What's that verse speaking about? Where do we expect to see crops growing today? You know, here in England's green and pleasant land, and I think that's an English view on the screen, you know, we just pass through on the roadways, past the fields, uh, at least if you're a city man like me, uh, a townie, you know, we, we look at the fields and we say, oh, someone's been working hard. If you're a farmer, you have been working hard as you've sought to make those crops grow. But in England's green and pleasant land, it is something that you see those rolling hills those rolling fields, and farmers know where best to plan a good harvest. That's their expertise. And even those who are just amateur gardeners, we try and read all those labels in the garden centres on the plants to make sure that we're buying the right kind of plant to fit in that particular part of our garden to make sure that it grows, it grows well. But... This verse, Psalm 72, verse 16, it says, Let corn abound through the land on the tops of the hills. Whoever plants a crop on top of a hill or a mountain? 
Not very often, do we? You know, it's not the natural place. And as we look at those mountain views, yes, there's plants in the foreground, but on that mountain top, it's just a rock and a snow. And here is this verse of seven, Psalm 72, verse 16. And it says, There will be a handful of corn in the earth on the top of the mountain. What's it doing there? How did it get there? Who climbed that mountain to plant it there? Who is going to water it? Who's going to tend it? It's a long way up that mountain. Who is going to see to that? An abundant crop that even the mountain tops will show its marvels. In addition to the normal harvest down at uh, uh, ordinary field level, something marvellous has happened. Even the remote areas are seeing the blessing of God as portrayed in this psalm. Let's just ask a question or two about this psalm. Why was it written? Who wrote it? Some of our Bibles will have an inscription on the psalm which will say, Of Solomon. Sometimes that means who wrote it. Many of our psalms were written by David. We often think of the psalms as being what uh, the, the, the songs that David wrote and played, and they were played in worship and so on. Some of them, however, are ascribed to a guy called Asaph. The very next psalm, Psalm 73, is a psalm of Asaph. And he apparently was uh, a choir leader in, in his day. And there's another group called the Sons of Korah. Um, so, you know, there's various psalms, various authors. But what does it mean when it says, of Solomon? Did he write it? Or was it written about him? Well, Depends which Bible commentary you read as to which you might believe, and I don't think it matters this morning, but certainly there's something about Solomon in this psalm. Could be written by his father David as a prayer for Solomon. Might have been written about Solomon himself because he wants to pray that God will bless his reign. And this psalm seems to be celebrating the rule of a great king. All sorts of things here that other kings will bring him gifts. Kings will bow down to him. Uh, that they will bring him offerings and things like that. That he will judge the people in righteousness uh, and there will be prosperity. Well you want your king, your leader to do well for the country, don't you? It's our natural desire these days for our own country that our leaders will make our country prosper. And so this particular psalm is praying that God will bless and celebrate the king's rule and it will be so successful that the crops will grow not just in the ordinary fields but even on the mountaintop. Wow! What a great king he must be to make crops grow right up there at the top. Well, not quite of Everest, because Everest wasn't in that country. But you, you get the picture on the top, or perhaps of Mount Carmel, or other mountains. Wow, what a great king Solomon must be. How's that for success? But there's more. 
there's more. Solomon was seen in his own lifetime as a great king, wasn't he? You know, he's, we talk about Solomon being wise. We talk about Solomon being skillful. We talk about Solomon being wealthy, commissioning the temple and dedicating it to God, dedicating himself to God. He was a man who, it seems, he began at least by worshipping God, putting him first, and indeed, a lot of the things written in Psalm 72 actually became true of Solomon. Wise, wonderful, skillful, wealthy. Yet even he could not fulfill all the wishes and prayers of Psalm 72. He was not always wise, especially in later years. Scripture record shows us that he took up the worship of other gods because in his great hiring with concubines and other wives, he began the worship of foreign gods instead of completing that dedication to God himself, the true God. So he was not always wise. His devotion to the Lord faltered. And is it really true that all nations will be blessed through him and call him blessed? Is it really true that Solomon's name would endure forever? May it continue as long as the sun? Well, is that really what we expect of any ruler, of any king? Well, we want our leaders to be wise and righteous. So in some senses, that could be valid and relevant. But you know, there's another king, isn't there? There's another king about who all this is indeed true. And I want to turn over to John chapter 18 and just quote a few verses from there. And in John 18, we have the Lord Jesus Christ on trial before Pilate. And Pilate summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus replied, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Here, indeed, is King Jesus, about whom, indeed, Psalm 72 is truly prophetic, not only just about Solomon, who partly succeeds, um, fulfilled it, but not completely, but Jesus Christ, King of Kings, does. Here again we have harvest in an unexpected place. Harvest in unexpected place. Solomon-ish, but Jesus, yes. Not in crops on a mountaintop, but the fruitfulness of Christ's life. Jesus is about to climb a mountain of his own to the hill of Golgotha to be crucified. 
for the Jewish chief priests and rulers. This was to rid themselves of a troublesome preacher who questioned all their rituals and teachings. For the Roman authorities, like Pilate, this was to rid themselves of another potential rebel who might oppose their rule in this unruly province. For the disciples of Jesus, this was an unexpected but awful end to their hopes and dreams. For Jesus himself, the awful end would not be an end, but would produce the fruit of God's plan of salvation for the whole world, harvest in an unexpected place. How could the mountain of Calvary produce something so wonderful as the salvation of the world? Not just those 12 disciples, not just the family of Jesus, but for those those scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law, it was for them. For those Jews who shouted, crucify him, it was for them. For those Romans, it was for them. Those soldiers who nailed him to the cross. And indeed, says Jesus, that the whole world might believe. Harvest in an unexpected place. You see, there's always a deeper meaning to harvest in the scriptures. Always. Harvest is never just about crops. It's never just about sowing the physical seed. It's never just about bringing forth good fruit in the sense of what we eat and drink. There's always something more. There's always that spiritual angle. There is always something where God is speaking to us about our lives and our future. That's what harvest is all about within Scripture. And that's implicit even in, those, in this psalm and in that verse that I'm focusing on this morning. It isn't just about a harvest in an unusual place that somehow in Solomon's reign it was going to be so successful that, cra- that crops would even grow on the top of a mountain. There's something so much more that in the unexpected place of our lives, God can produce good fruit. There's always that deeper meaning. God blesses his righteous people. God tests us when we waver. One of the prophets, Jeremiah, spoke about his people, Israel, when they were really rebelling against God, were sometimes coming back, but they were wavering in their discipleship. And at one point he says to them, the harvest is past, that's the physical harvest, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. That's the spiritual harvest. In other words, there was no fruit there. There might be fruit in, that, in the earthly sense, but in their lives they had not repented, they had not come back to God, and the spiritual fruit was not there. There was as yet no harvest. There are consequences to the way that the people of God serve. We reap what we sow. I wonder what our experience is of unexpected harvest. Over in 
the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth. And he's explaining how this church developed. Because some of them are being rather rebellious and they're saying, oh, I like Paul. Another one, another group are saying, I like Peter. Another group are saying, I like Apollos. Those are the people. You know, it's people worship, leader worship. And yes, we all get involved with that sometimes, don't we? For better or worse, sometimes we say, that's really the preacher I want to hear. Oh, if it's that other preacher, not going to bother today. <laughs> But here is Paul describing how God grows his church. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 6. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. Paul, that first missionary to Corinth, this multicultural Greek city, so many th different things going on within its walls. Apollos comes along a little bit later. He's an able Bible scholar and teacher. He knows the Old Testament and he also knows Jesus and he knows how to put the two together and the people of God in Corinth are richly blessed, even if they are arguing amongst themselves about who's the greatest. But it was God who made it grow. Yes, they had their troubles in Corinth. It was not a united church and there were many challenges. It can be the same today, can't it? Every church has its ups and downs. And yet we need at those moments to look at the broader picture that God is harvesting his crop that God is the making us grow. I was blessed recently by reading a, a little book by George Verwer, someone that left it on the bookstall out there, and I picked it up, and I thought, hey, this is, this is good. And in that book, uh, George Verwer wrote, wrote about many issues that divide Christians. You know, whether things like the kind of hymns we might sing, you know, whether we ought to have just keep to the traditional ones of 1870 or thereabouts, or whether we should really be hyping it up with the latest piece uh, and, and so on. And uh, also, perhaps, uh, a service that's full of ritual, because some really like their ministers to be gown clad in all sorts of different colours and a ritual at an altar. Others will have none of it and want a free church to be led by the Spirit, as it were. And George Verwer observed that in spite of the differences, God was blessing both angles and all those other little angles in between. And George Verwer called it messiology. In other words, it's something that's messy and it works. Messiology. You see, Christians can sometimes speak about missiology, M-I-S-S, etc., because we speak about mission. But George Verwer just altered one, that one letter and made it M-E-S-S, -S, messiology, because church is messy. 
and when we quarrel with one another it's messy and we might think well how can God bless that lot over there because they do it that way haven't we got the right way God is working in unexpected places not only is he working here he's working over there as well praise God and if we can say praise God to that then there is better blessing for the church as a whole should the church be deeply involved with community or withdraw and be separate God is blessing both we may not expect God to bless that other group but he does harvest in unexpected places but what about a harvest in our personal experience just as in church life so it is in our personal walk with Christ there should be harvest in unexpected places one of the most meaningful texts is this in Galatians 5 verses 22 and 23 all sorts of things are going on in the world around us the acts of sinful nature says Paul but here we have the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control isn't that to harvest in unexpected places when we look at our own lives when we know what we are like inside when we apply that other rather more well-known psalm psalm 139 O lord search me within and the lord just turns over a stone in our lives and underneath that stone there's an awful lot of weeds and foul things lord did i really want you to unturn that stone <laughs> not really but we repent of that or we should and then God says, I want to plant a seed within your heart. I want it to bear fruit. And this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's the fruit. That's the harvest in an unexpected place. We, don't ex we hardly expect to see corn blowing on the top of a mountain, perhaps, in Psalm 72. Do we expect to see the fruit of the Spirit in our own lives? Do we expect love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, fidelity, gentleness, self-control? How is this fruit produced? How is this harvest brought about? Depends on what we sow. In the same Galatian letter, Paul speaks about the way we can sow by our acts and what we do. Do not be deceived, Galatians 6 and verse 7. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life let us not become weary in doing good can our lives be that good <laughs> long time ago someone said uh, in my hearing oh he wouldn't hurt a fly it's 
speaking about me. Well, <laughs> you might not believe that these days. Well, I didn't respond to that person, but I could have responded, lady, you don't know what I did to flies when I was tw a 12-year-old schoolboy. <laughs> don't ask, I'm not saying from here. <laughs> but it was a bit desperate. But you see, here's the fruit of the Spirit to transform our lives. It's one fruit. One fruit. You know, it's not nine fruit. It's one. See, some people have, almost by natural character, some people are always joyful, aren't they? And you think, oh yeah, he's a happy kind of guy. That's a happy kind of lady. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Some, of us, some people are, are like that. Some people are always gentle. But the fruit of the Spirit is one fruit... And what God does is to begin to reproduce the whole package, if you like, the whole fruit in the lives of Christians. A fruit of many flavours. One flavour is love, another flavour is faithfulness, another flavour is self-control. But it is one fruit and that is what God is doing in your life and in mine. If we know him and if the Spirit is within us. It's all those nine attitudes and blessings. That's why the New Testament encourages us in Ephesians 5 to be filled with the Spirit. It's why it encourages us in Galatians 5 to keep in step with the Spirit, the Spirit of God. Harvest in unexpected places. Yes, not just a psalm prophesying a king of long ago. Not just expecting great things to happen in, in a future. But yes, prophesying of Jesus that his salvation would come to us and prosper our lives. And that our lives, the unexpected thing is that our lives can be transformed by the Spirit of God. So this morning I would just like to conclude by asking, is there a harvest in our Christian experience? The seed of God's word has been planted in our lives. Our regular attendance at meetings like this or home groups or personal prayer and personal reading of God's word, spending time in worship, listening to Christian music and whatever, allows that seed to be watered. That's what makes it grow. But it is God, most of all, who makes it grow. And as we give ourselves to God and say, Lord, I want you in my life. Lord, I need your Holy Spirit to flood my life afresh. The harvest in the unexpected place is the miracle that God has worked in our lives. He actually saved me. He actually saved you, all of us. Where would any of us have been without God's work? If you think back over your life and things you might have done, well, who knows what some of those things might have been. But sometimes we need to do some gardening to allow God's harvest, the fruit of the Spirit, to come to a real harvest within our lives, 
which will then bless others and the world around us. So this morning, is there a crop growing in that unexpected place? Is the corn blowing in the breeze on top of your mountain? In the sense that is the fruit of the Spirit being seen in our lives? You know, earlier we were praying for our community, and it's right that we do so. How can we most bless that community? By allowing God to bring the fruit of his Spirit into our lives, which then automatically reaches out to touch and bless the lives of others. In a moment we'll conclude our service, we'll sing another song or two perhaps, but if there's any of us who just need a fresh touch from God, perhaps to be filled afresh with his Holy Spirit, or to say to the Lord, Lord, I've not always been walking in the Spirit, help me today to take new steps to follow you and let your fruit be seen in my life. This may be an opportunity just to take time to pray, either in your own seat where you are, or to allow one of the members of the prayer team to come and pray with you, to pray with us, that our lives will show his fruit. Harvest is not just on our pulpit. Harvest will bless those people who receive those things, but harvest in the unexpected place in our lives will bless the community of God and this world. May God help us in these days to, to see that occur. I'm going to ask the music group please to come and join us again as we sing, I think, Jesus, all for Jesus.